My special guest, Stuart Gibbon, is a former senior detective and now a much sought-after crime-writing consultant and author. Throughout this series, we're going to be exploring his police career, his writing work, and how procedurally accurate the bill was. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this fascinating series of podcasts. It must have been a difficult career to to decide to move move on from, uh, if you ever can. I mean, what was your thought process? I think really I was I was dealing with murder cases for, for a few years towards the, as I was approaching 30 years in the service. And, and when you get to 30 years, it's a decision you then need to make. Do I, do I leave or do I carry on? And it does have an impact. As you quite rightly say, it has a massive impact on you. Dealing with crime full stop, being a police officer full stop has an impact. And anybody that says it doesn't, you know, that, that's not the case. Because you see and hear things and you deal with things that you wouldn't want anybody else to, to see, hear or deal with. So... I was dealing with murder cases kind of consistently for a few years, and that does take its toll very much so. And even though you've got friends and family that you can bounce off, it still stays with you, as you say. You know, maybe years later, something might happen. You might hear a certain bit of music or you might see something. It takes you back to something that you've dealt with. So it, is, it, is, it does have an impact. And I think I just got to the stage where I realised I'd reached 30 years. I'd crammed an awful lot into that 30 years. I was still... And a relatively young, really, I suppose, because I joined when I was 18. Um, so I'm going to make a big decision. You know, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to leave. I'm actually going to leave. I have no idea really what I want to do. But I know I've done this for consistently for more than 30, if you count the two years in the cadets, 32 years since I was a kid, basically. You know, and I've gone through all my, you know, the 20s, 30s. So that's it. I'm going to leave. And, and so I'm retired. From the, from the police service, put the notice in, and there was one or two people trying to talk me out of it, which is always the case, which is nice in a way. I'd made my mind up, and I said, no, I, I, that's it now. I'll let somebody else take over. And as it happens, the, the chap that worked with me as my deputy took over my job, which was nice. Um, and it was still murder cases and that sort of thing. I just had a break. Not a, not a really long break, but I needed a break, I think, uh, just to kind of try and switch off a little bit, try and relax, and just, just try and not forget because you can't forget but just try and chill out a little bit do you know what i mean just do things differently but it wasn't that long before i started getting itchy feet and i was like you know i'm at home um, i'm under the missus's feet and you know what you do today and, and i didn't want to i remember somebody saying to me once you know it's very difficult when you leave the police service because you've got all that camaraderie and you've got all that experience and you know it's your they, they're your family you've got your own family at home but you've also got a police family and when you leave that family, they're not there anymore kind of thing. Yeah, you can ring them up, but you're the ex-cop that's left kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. And of course, they are still very friendly, but it's just not the same. And he, and he said to me, this chap, don't, don't be the fellow that goes out and just goes and sits on the park bench every day or, you know, does something and starts maybe drinking too much or, you know, just be very careful because it's such a big change from being 100 mile an hour, being involved in all this police work to actually having no responsibilities from that side of things. What you, you find something to do, don't just do nothing because you might spiral into some kind of maybe depression, you know, that sort of thing. Just keep yourself active. And I remember thinking that and thinking, well, I've learned so much. I've got so much up here and I could probably share that with people. There must be something I can kind of do to, to help people out. I want to keep helping people, you know. And, and that's, that's where we went. We then went down the road of, I'd always read books anyway. I, 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 I wasn't a massive reader, 
but I'd often pick up an old time book or science fiction book and I'll read through it. A couple of times I've seen that um, things like I said about TV, where you read something, you think, well, that's, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> where does that come from? You know, because that's just totally unrealistic. And I know it's probably not a big thing in the grand scheme of things, but I just thought, well, I wonder where these writers get their kind of information from. Obviously, the internet, maybe, books and things, TV, probably. And it's not always bang on because they're writing for drama, so it's not always going to be bang on. It can't be, otherwise it'd be quite boring. And I just started bombarding, bombarding. I found a list load of writers' details on the internet, contacted an organisation that deals with crime writers in particular, and just kind of sent emails out and just said, look, this is me. I've just retired recently. Um, I'm willing to help writers that are writing either crime or anything to do with the police. You know, it might be a missing person. It doesn't have to be crime. But obviously crime will be my specialist area, I guess. Murder in particular, but any crime, really. And police procedure. And it all went very quiet. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. Let's think of, let's think of something else now, because it's not going to happen. But then I got an email from a lady who was a quite experienced writer. And she said, what a great idea. I've never heard of that before. I've never known anybody kind of volunteer their services as a kind of consultant or whatever. So I'll pass the details on to some of my colleagues. And then after that, it just kind of gradually picked up pace. And I got an email, then I'll do a bit of work for somebody. And then I do some more, and then I get an email saying, oh, you helped my friend such and such. Is there any chance you can help me out? And, and it was like recommendation, word of mouth. And it went from there to the point where now, quite a few years later, I guess, it's an, it's an established kind of business for me. And I help out script writers, people that I did one the other day for somebody that was doing a theatre production based on the Yorkshire Ripper. Wow. Uh, we did a Zoom call about what the police was like in the 80s and stuff like that. And albeit it was in Yorkshire that that happened, they were obviously wanting to know about experiences of dealing with detectives and uniformed officers, what the culture was like. And we went down to London just before the, um, the first lockdown to watch them perform this. It was brilliant. All the incident room very well reviewed. So script writers, mainly, mainly authors, um, but I also help other people that are writing about, about crime and police procedure. It's a strange old role in a way because you can't tell how busy you're going to be at any given time. Because writers being writers will think of an idea and bollock this, can you just do, can you look at this? So I tend to find I might have like four jobs on at once and then I might have a period where I'm relatively quiet for a month or two, which is fine. So there's a bit of management around how you do it and not to, try not to take on too much or being realistic as to how much you can actually do. Well, I love it. I love it. And the nice thing about it is you build up friendships with the writers. You get to meet them sometimes pre-pandemic. I go to writing festivals and do talk and things like that. So you get to meet these people. And sometimes you get a nice little acknowledgement in the book as well. You know, when you read thanks to such and such. Thanks to Stuart Gillen for helping me with a picture. It's lovely. I like that. And you read the book. You, know, you get to read the book. And I just, I, I find it rewarding because I just think it enhances the books. And I've, I say, I always say to people, you don't want too much police procedure in your book because it would be dull. You know, if, if there's too much in there, it just becomes a dull book. You want it to have action. You want it to be, you want it to grip the reader. But what better things to put in there than the odd acronym or the odd comment or Maybe a little bit of the police phonetic alphabet, which I was talking about the other day. You know, the old Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Sierra, Oscar, those sort of, you know, put it put it in there. If you've got the police officers talking to each other on the radio or whatever, just drop a little bit in it. You just have to have a little bit of something authentic that's bang on. We'll engage the reader and we'll convince the reader that you know exactly what you're talking about. 
and, and I think some people that do pick up books, probably a bit like me, uh, like I was, if it's wrong, they might think, you know, yeah. they might put it down, or they might not, but it might might not engage them as much. So I, I enjoy doing it, um, set up a little website. Um, and as I say, most of it now is people that I've worked with or they have recommended other people to me. And they just they come back now and again. And that's been, I've been doing that for a while, really. Then we move on to the writing. I've started, I started writing as well. That came about when I was, at, uh, I was asked to chair a, a panel of crime writers. Cool. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was like, yeah, you, you used to be a DCI, you know, you, and you're now helping writers. So why don't you come and chair this panel? And there were three writers on there. One of them was called Stephen Wade. Brilliant man from North Lincolnshire, originally from Yorkshire. He's a crime historian. So his knowledge of the 1700s, 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s with the police and crime is just second to none, I would suggest. Written many, many books before. Anyway, long story short, we got chatting over a coffee after the event and he said, you know, would you be interested in writing a book, me and you? And I sort of looked and thought, never written a book, I wouldn't even know where to start. And he said, well, we could write it to help writers out, put lots of information in there that you, you help them with already. I could approach it from a historical perspective, because if you're writing a crime history book, you want to get your dates right. It's no good saying that somebody was hanged for something when actually they, they weren't hanging people then. No, that, that's an extreme example, but you know what I mean? Get it yeah, right. Yeah. Let's go for it. So we started to write. I mean, I've never written before, but I just started to type. Took me quite a while. Took us both quite a while. And then our first book, which is the Crime Writers Casebook, was born. And do you know what, Oliver? It's, this book seems to be as popular now as when it came out. And it came out in 2017. And I just can't get my head around it. I know it's got lots of useful information. And I think it's, I'm biased, but I think it's not a bad book. It's full of facts and full of case studies, which people really like. You know, proper case studies about real murders that have happened and real forensic cases and, that, and it's, there's lots in it um but it's really really popular and writers will have that on the bookshelf and they'll if they want to look something up they'll dip in and out of it and have a quick look and there we go so we wrote that book and it, it did quite well you can imagine what happened then we, we managed to get a publisher and he was pleased because the books he'd written before had never quite been like this one he writes they're, they're really guides really and he writes guides to things like health and safety which was popular, by the way, but I mean, not in the same as this one, really. Different subjects, human rights and different subjects, whereas this was a bit more kind of for writers, as well as true crime fans, of course. So we wrote that one. Can you write another one? And we thought about it. Well, can we? Well, I suppose we can. What do we do? Let's write a book about the detective, the role of the detective. From way back when detectives were first formed, which was actually in 1842, believe it or not, when the CIA were first formed, and they used to go from Scotland Yard all over the country to help solve murder cases. You know, they, they have them in their own little areas for a long time. That was Being a Detective, which was book two. Um, that's so very different because it's, it literally is about historical and contemporary. How do people train, like I mentioned earlier about the apprenticeship that I went through, how do people train to be a detective these days? What do they have to do? How do they get there? You know, what sort of cases do they investigate? How do they do it? What sort of tactics, tactics do they use? And we've written this one in an A to Z format. So all the letters of the alphabet are covered with several entries. So it starts off with 
the ABC principle. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but that's a principle that, uh, that police officers and particularly investigators and detectives use. And the ABC principle is very simply the way you approach something. You assume nothing, that's your A. You believe nobody, sounds a bit harsh, but you've got to be very careful and you check everything. So the ABC is basically just covering all bases. So it starts with that and it finishes off with an entry about Z cars. Which hey! Speaks, <laughs> kind of, well, that's one yeah. of the um, bags, if you like. And, and in there, there's things from way back Sherlock Holmes times, but also I've brought it right up to date. So I've put things in there about um, cybercrime, telephone scams, keyless car crime, you know, where the thieves, there's a big surge on at the moment where you've got a fob for your car, but you haven't got the key. You press the button. Well, there's a way that criminals can come to your door um, with a relay transmitter. And if you've left your key somewhere near the front door, it can pick the signal up from the key and then the other criminal stands by the car, it sends it to the other the other machine and it opens the car door and then all you need to do is get in and drive away. And this happens to high value cars, you know, your top of the range cars. Uh, there's obviously methods that you can do to secure it, but I'll put a little bit in there about that. And it's very simple if you've got a keyless car, you can buy something called a Faraday bag, which is just a little pouch and it's got kind of a lining inside it. Um, like it's, I think it's aluminium. And it stops the signal from being picked up. So you just pop it in that bag. And even if you're near it by the front door, as long as it's in that bag, you know, it's safe. Or likewise, put your keys way outside, miles away from the doors and windows. So there's a little bit of crime prevention advice thrown in there. Yeah, 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 I love it. <laughs> that was sort of um, being a detective. And again, that one has proved, those two books have just proved so popular, mainly for writers, but not exclusively. I've had emails and messages from, People who just like true crime, you know, who watch all the documentaries on TV about true crime, who have just got the book and said, you know, I just love the case studies. What we try and do is if we put something in, we try and give some real life examples of when this sort of thing's happened or to put it into context. And it, and it seems to work. It's a brilliant, there's no feeling like it with the first time you hold it in your hand, is it? The finished. Yeah, even, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it. And I think they look nice as well. And we've had some comments saying they look, they look, I mean, all books are nice, aren't they? But the covers and that, they just, they've got a certain something about them that they just look really smart, I think. Yeah. Obviously, a bit biased. But then we moved on to doing some, um, some simple guides, say simple, comprehensive, excuse me, guides. Um, that one's for arrest and detention. We've done three of these now. This is basically a, a smaller version um, of specific subjects. So this would tell you, for example, if you're writing crime, and your subject is going to be arrested by the police, taken to the police station and detained, that will tell you everything you need to know from the powers that the police would need to arrest you, how they would caution you, what they would say, to exactly what happens when you arrive at the police station, who you go before, what your rights are, what your rights and entitlements are while you're in the police station, how long they can keep you for, what happens at the end of that detention, you know, just everything that we could think of. And obviously Steve has talked about historical arrests which were totally different and the way yeah. things used to work way back in the day so we've carried on that historical contemporary kind of approach because it seemed to work but now we've gone down the route of you know these smaller comprehensive guides so if people want to know just about arrest and detention then there won't be much that they need to know that probably won't be in there i'd like to think number five came out last sunday wow Absolutely. And that, that one is 
totally different because it's about drinking and disorder. So this is all about, um, as it says, drinking disorder. <laughs> the offences that you can commit when you've had a drink. So drinking disorderly, those sort of offences. Drink driving, because a lot of write, write about drink driving. You need to know what the limit is. You need to know what a police officer will say to you when they're asking to take a breath test, how you do that breath test. Of course, drug driving is now more popular. Probably the wrong word, but the, the officers now are being faced with drug drivers more than drink drivers these days. So there's oh, something right. there about drug driving, how the officers on the road. scary, isn't it? That's scary. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and these are people who have taken maybe cannabis or cocaine probably the night before, but it stays in the system for so long that they may not even realise that they're impaired when they get behind the wheel of that car. You know, it's, it's a lethal weapon. So we've, we've covered quite a lot of ground and we just keep, at the moment, we're, we're still writing. I don't know when and if we'll stop, but, you know, whilst the demand is, seems to be there and, and we have the time to, to do it uh, and the inclination to carry on, we will do. So I'm kind of juggling the writing with the advice at the minute, which sometimes can be quite tough. There was a period of lockdown where I struggled a bit. I think many people did, in fairness. But I worked from home and I was at home an awful lot because couldn't go out that much. Um, and I tended probably to overload a bit on the work and didn't have so much leisure. So that got on top of me a little bit. I was doing too much work, really, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. I think, you know, when you're working from home, the tendency is I'll just do another half hour, you know, and then I might have a tea or stretch my legs. Before you know it, an hour's gone and you sat there, you know, it's just, you need to be quite, quite self-disciplined when you're doing those sort of things. I'm sure you know that as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, we'll get there. Now I just kind of, I'm realistic and just try and manage my time a bit. And I, I go out for walks and I still I still do a little bit of sport. Not as active as I used to be, but I, I try to keep active as best I can. So things are a bit different now, but, you know, still enjoy. And I'm guessing the, uh, you know, the the detective's nose never goes away, does it? Do you, do you, do you find yourself intrigued sometimes when you're out and about? Think, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I'll just give you a little example. <laughs> Friend of my, my my missus, um, she's a hairdresser. You, you can tell, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> she, um, she's got a client, and the client said to her, "There was a car pulled up outside our house the other day, and two blokes got out of it with a hold all, and it was a BMW, and they left it in such an awkward position, and they, they literally almost ran off and got in this other car and drove off, and the car's still there. We rung the police, um, and they." Took, uh, did they take the I can't remember. But anyway, they didn't send anybody out, was what was what we were being told, which might be the case. I, I really don't know. They might have misunderstood, whatever. I don't know. But anyway, I said, Well, what, where's the car? Where's the car? So she told me where the car is. It just happened to be on my like walking route. So I said, oh, I'll go and have a look. So of course, I'd go out for a walk and have a look, and the car's there. So I think, Oh, that's interesting. I have a quick look. I don't touch it, obviously, anything like that, but just have a quick look as I walk past it, see if there's anything I can see inside it. It's a BMW, um, and it is kind of awkwardly parked on a bit of the road that's actually a cycle path. It's not a road at all. It's where it's split between a pedestrian bit and a cycle bit, and it right. was across the white line covering both. So anybody in a mobility scooter or a wheelchair or tram is going to struggle. Yeah. It's called a bit of an obstruction, really. So, so I, um, I kind of got the registration and made a note of that, put it in my phone, carried on my walk, and then when I got back, I rang the nig. And she said, you know, this guy, and she said, actually, yeah, it's funny you should mention that, but we have got a report of it. Um, it's come in fairly recently. And we've just we've just sent officers up there to check it out. Um, 
can I just ask what your kind of interest is in the course when they say I said well I used to be a, I don't say I'm ex such and such I would never ever do that I wouldn't even introduce it unless it was relevant and I just said oh yeah I used to be a police officer that's all and somebody's told me that it, you know there's some sort of suspicious behaviour so she took the details from me and said yeah no problem we'll look into it so and if I see you know if I see a vulnerable person's garden being done by some people that look a bit you know dodgy if you like and their appearances aren't everything but sometimes people get ripped off you know get charged an awful lot of money for very little work or no work i've been known before to clock the registration of the van and what's written on the side and then and then ring them up um yeah unless it was life or you know or injury or something needed to be done there and then that's the way i'd probably approach it but that's the detective kind of thing you know i'm going to get this sorted it might not be right now but i'm going to take the details and i'm going to look into it I'm going to get to the bottom. I'm terrible at that. I'm really, yeah, I'm really nosy as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm really nosy. I've got a habit. When I used to live in London, I lived in Harrow, well, Harrow Weald, and I had a first floor flat. And my flatmate used to say, well, are you going on your perch now, mate, are you? Because I used to stand and look, just have a look out the window every now and again, up and down the street, because it's amazing what you see, isn't it? And yeah, so yeah. I used to see all sorts going on, you know, and it's just, I'd, it, doesn't, it doesn't go away. It never does, really. No. And I think it probably winds the missus up sometimes if we go somewhere and I'm kind of, I'm not over the top, don't get me wrong. No, no. see something happening or a bit of dodgy behaviour that looks like something like drug dealing going on or something, I'm kind of having a look at it and paying a bit of attention to it and trying to take in all the, all the information. Because I think you're absolutely right. That sort of thing doesn't go away. No. It's like when you watch a TV programme and it, it's your subject and it's wrong. You know, they do something wrong. And I try not to jump up and say, what's all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must be hard. But yeah, it can be a little bit. What 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 are the, the common things that you think people get wrong or the main misconceptions that people make about? Well, I think, I think really, to be honest, there's probably maybe a couple that t- that, that TV dramas, and I, I completely understand why it happens, because it has to happen. You know, these things are an hour or two hours long. They've got to get the baddie at the end of the day. It's got to be concluded, and I totally get it, and it's got to be exciting. But when you get writers that, that look at those and then, then write a book based around that, it can be quite problematic. So I guess maybe one of them is the old the forensic side of things. So, you know, you've got your murder, your body and outdoors, say, in a forest or whatever, and you've got your forensic officers, maybe you've got your crime scene tape around the body, and you've got your forensic officers with all the gear on, the white suits and the gloves and the face cover and everything. And then the DCI comes in, the lead character with a size nines on and stops <laughs> all over the crime scene saying, can I just have a look and get the pen out? And, you know, can I just have a look closer there? And I've seen that before a few times. That makes me giggle because it's just so, it shouldn't happen. Yeah. I understand in a way why they've written it like that because if you had sort of the DCI fully closed up, you wouldn't be able to see them and it, would, it just wouldn't be the same. But it, it makes people think that they can do that sort of thing. The DCI does that, you know, or the detectives can come in and trample all over the crime scene, even while they're still there taking photographs and picking up evidence. So that's probably forensic-wise is one. I know that winds a lot of my old colleagues and friends up all the time. It, it really does. And the other one is probably the fact that the, 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 the DC, let's say Vera, I'm not picking on Vera because I love Vera, but Vera, Midsummer Murders, they do everything, don't they? They're literally solving the case. They're interviewing witnesses. They're interviewing suspects. They're all over the place doing things. Well, in reality, that's that doesn't happen at all. Yes, you may 
as, as an SIO in charge of a murder, I probably would go to the crime scene. I'd make sure I got all the gear and I wouldn't touch anything, but I'd go and have a look because I want to picture it for myself. But I wouldn't be interviewing the suspect. That's for other people to do. I'm, I kind of, I, I like in the, the SIO in a case is like the conductor of an orchestra. So you've got all this, all this going on around, you're juggling all these balls, you're making sure you don't drop any, um, but you're actually asking other people to do most of the work for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, yeah. You make the really big decisions, the really big ones, and you write them all down, you document them, you have to justify them. And, and, and in the end of the day, you are ultimately in charge if something goes wrong. The book stops with you. My huge thanks to Stuart. There'll be more gold dust to come from him. In the meantime, you can follow the great man on Twitter at GIB Consultancy. You can also visit his website, gibconsultancy.co.uk, where you'll find information on Stuart's fantastic series of crime reference books, which are truly fascinating. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned. In the meantime, here's the mighty Ben Payton to read our closing credits. Hello, this is Ben Payton, and you have been listening to The Bell Podcast. Produced and presented by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Ben Adams, Dan Evans, Sarah Kuiper, Alex Mockler, and Simon Wolfe. Executive produced by Glenn Allen, Ben Ashmore, Daniel Christopher, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Paul Dunn, George Fairbrother, Stuart Gibbon, Erin Gordon, Luke Hegarty, Edward Kellett. James Ladane, Lucy McNeil, Stuart and Jen Morris, Claire Norbury, Justin Pitt, Tom Sherrington, Angel Stannard, Patrick Stratford, Sarah Went, and Michael Weil. Brought to you in association with GeorgeFairbrother.com and Misty Moon Events. Signed copies of Oliver Crocker's book, Witness Statements, are available from DevonFireBooks.com. Mm-hmm.